This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. Good evening, everybody, and thank you so much for joining us here in the Situation Room on Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. As always, I'm your host, Caleb Colquitt. Thank you for joining us on the program today. Let's go ahead and start the day as we always have since the beginning of this na nationwide and worldwide pandemic with looking at the numbers right where we are from the department, uh, from the Alabama Department, I should say, of public health. So let's go ahead and dive into those stats and statistics. First of all, we have 8,581 confirmed cases of the Wuhan coronavirus. We have 109,516 confirmed cases, 340 ha that have passed away because of COVID-19, and 1,158 hospitalizations. One thing that you will notice here, and, and I kind of picked up on this as well, you remember originally those blue dots, which represent the number of people. Now, granted, they're not adjusted for population, so obviously you're going to have bigger blue dots in the larger population areas than not, but it seems as though they're much more even than they were at one time, because you may recall when this whole thing started, you had really big blue dots in, like, Jefferson County and Baldwin County, and then it kind of started shrinking for the larger population areas, and it got a lot more widespread. That's really not anything to be surprised about, just an observation that I made. And we'll go ahead and look at the number of cases for the coronavirus, how many cases have been confirmed. And you'll see that the, it's not nearly as big an increase as yesterday. But again, how much, because yesterday we had the most cases of a, of a single day since we've been tracking this thing. And on that graph, you can barely even tell. You can tell that there was an uptick yesterday, and then you see that it kind of levels off a little bit today. But the overall projection of the chart has remained fairly consistent for a long time now. And I think, honestly, it may even be time to stop using this one every day. This is one of the graphs that I use every single day because I know that people want to know how many cases that we have, and, and that's understandable. I don't in any way begrudge that, but at the same time, I'm thinking, frankly, it's getting to the point where it's kind of useless because the graph, this graph has not really told us anything that we didn't already know for a while now. And the reason that I say that is the primary reason we were looking at this graph from the start was to see if we were going to see sort of an exponential spike that we had seen in other cases like Italy, like Spain, other places where you would see the cases go up a little bit, up a little bit, and then all of a sudden there's this exponential increase. That has not happened anywhere. That has not happened really even in New York, to be perfectly honest, which is the epicenter of this virus for the United States of America. We've really not even seen it there. There have been numeric increases for sure, and in, uh, in New York even pretty substantial numeric increases, but we have not seen exponential increases where we're seeing three or four times the number of people that we had yesterday like we are seeing in other countries. Granted, New York's gotten darn close to that a few times, but in Alabama it's not even been really a debate on whether or not that's happened yet. It hasn't even come close. Like I said, yesterday was the biggest single-day gain that we've ever had, and it was 400 in a state that has 
over 8,000 cases now. And so that exponential spike just never happened. And that's a good thing, obviously. We're glad that that never happened We're because that those exponential spikes are the thing that tend to overwhelm the healthcare system. That has never happened in the state, and based on what we're seeing, it does not appear as though it is going to happen. Now, I think that part of that was probably because so many people did decide to shelter in place, adhere to the guidelines. I think that that makes a really, really big difference. I'm not saying that, oh, look at this. This means we never should have uh, start social distancing and we should have just never interrupted our lives at all for this. Well, no, I think the fact that the graph is showing what it's showing is, is kind of an indication of the opposite, that it actually did wind up working. Which does bring me to an interesting point in all of this. The reason that it's so hard to have a debate on what we should have done with somebody that has a differing view is that regardless of what side of, of that debate you may take, you're arguing against an unprovable unknowable. So what I mean by that, and I know that that was a mouthful, if you are somebody that is saying, see, it was really important that we went ahead and took all these measures because if we hadn't, all of the models were saying that we were going to get completely swamped and overwhelmed like, like other countries did. I think that you can make a case of that comparing some nations to, to states or whatever and trying to come up with an apples-to-apples apples comparison. But either way, you are still arguing against somebody, something that you cannot possibly know. Alabama, for example, is very, very different than Germany. And it's very, very different than Sweden. And very, very different from Italy. There's a hundred different cultural, socioeconomic, political, and cultural differences that can make a really big difference when we're talking about something like this. And so I'm not saying that all comparisons are null and void and, and there's no value to them. I'm just saying that you are arguing against what would have happened if we had done nothing. And you can't possibly know that. And the person on the other side of this that's saying that we never would we never should have shut down and we would have had roughly the same results regardless. We would have been in roughly the same position whether we had shut down or not. I don't think that that's correct either. But I also don't think that you can disprove that claim. And so you've got two people arguing non-falsifiable claims because the other side of their argument, the other thing that they're suggesting is completely unknowable. And unless you have an alternate reality portal somewhere... There's just no way to know whether or not the claim of what would have happened if we had done this or what would have happened if we hadn't, that's just, there's no way to actually have that debate unless you do a comparison to something that's pretty similar to what we have. And, and that's very, very hard to do at this point. I think with hindsight, that'll get a lot easier. But while we're in the middle of it right now, it's, it's very hard to make those comparisons. I say all that to say that, of course, the data is important. I've been saying from the very beginning that data is of the utmost importance. We should do our best to pay attention to it. But when it comes to this idea of an exponential spike and whether or not we flatten the curve, that's very hard to tell. It seems as though we did. I tend to lean toward the idea that because we took some of these measures, it actually wound up being pretty similar to what we've got now, especially when you consider places like Sweden that took virtually no shutdown measures and had the same thing. Oh, well, that's because the government didn't shut it down and they were all open uh, just like they were beforehand. Well, no, that's not true either. You'll notice that a lot of their citizens voluntarily self-quarantined, voluntarily decided either not to go to work or to be very cautious when they did. And so, again, 
I think that it makes it to where it's very, very difficult to have that discussion. That being said, let's go ahead and look at some numbers that I actually do think can be more beneficial in helping us understand the situation of what's going on here. Let's look at the new coronavirus cases in the state of Alabama. Now, you'll notice on this graph, and you remember we talked about this yesterday, yesterday, huge uptick. The biggest single day we have ever had for testing, we had tests that confirmed that people had the coronavirus at a rate of mm, about 400, uh, in excess of 400, I believe it was about 414, and we're seeing roughly a third of that today. We didn't even hit the 150 mark. The thing is, that's probably to be expected, because if you had a giant surge from yesterday, and then you had one that's actually significantly below average, below the 200 to 250 that we've become sort of accustomed to, well, I mean, you can see that that makes a big difference after having that big day yesterday. If you average those numbers out over a week, they start looking still up because we had one really big day, but far more normal than yesterday would have suggested. And that's one of the reasons I was telling everybody, hey, look, don't panic. I mean, it, it looks bad. We're having a bad day, but that could just as easily be followed up by a really good day like we did today, and it turns out that was the case. And you'll also notice that this graph coincides with a testing lag. So what I, I mean by that is, and I'll go ahead and bring up the new test in Alabama, that chart. So you'll notice that we have a really big exponential spike three days ago on new testing. Not an exponential spike, sorry, a numeric spike. So we're seeing a big spike, a very big day in testing three days ago on the test. And then you compare that to the cases in Alabama. Just two days ago, we had a really big day. When I say two days ago, I mean yesterday. So yesterday we had a really big day for testing. And so you'll notice that if you're looking at it, we had a whole lot of tests and a whole lot of new cases. That's not a coincidence. What's going on here is you're seeing the relationship between these two stats take place, that when we tested more people, that we had more confirmed cases. Now, there are several reasons why that's good news and some reasons why it may be bad news. Possibly the reason that we had an uptick in testing is because a lot more people got sick. And I tend to think that this is at least part of the equation, that more people felt as though they were symptomatic and needed a test because people are starting to move around a little bit more. This thing is starting to spread a little bit more, which was always part of the plan. It's always been something that we were expecting, that once people start moving around a little more, you're going to see an uptick in, in testing. Uh, sorry, an uptick in, in cases. And that uptick in testing is probably at least partially a result of that. More people did go out, they did get sick, they started experiencing symptoms, thus they went out and got tested. And when they did get tested, turns out we had a whole lot of people. So is it true that the reason that we're having a big uptick is because of an uptick in testing? Yeah, I think that's part of it. Is it also true that the reason we had an uptick in testing is at least partially, at least partially because more people were going out and getting infected? Yeah, that's probably accurate as well. And so... The, uh, you'll see a lot of people debate back and forth whether or not it was just an uptick in testing or it was because more people got sick. Well, actually, it's probably both. And you could chalk that up to both of those things actually being true. Now, one thing that I did want to bring to your attention when looking at the testing, you'll notice that there was a sharp decline 
in testing over the past few days because two days ago we had a really big uptick. Yesterday it was a pretty big drop-off, and today we've had barely any. So what's with the decline in testing? It's possible that it has something to do with supply issues, just like every other state. Alabama has had some issues in getting the tests that they need. But there's something else you need to be aware of here as well. If we had a giant slew of testing happening a few days ago, and we're having very few tests conducted today, it's possible that it's some kind of infrastructure thing. It is possible that what happened is the tests themselves, uh, or we just had an uptick in testing for, for a number of different reasons and factors, and that may be because more people did legitimately get sick. But if that took place then during the week when people are not necessarily going to be out and about as they did, especially if they, they work in a field where they're not working and they're going to be less mobile, you're going to get less people symptomatic, ergo less testing. And it's kind of like when everybody goes out and buys something that you're going to see very little of it later. It's possible that really big day of testing exhausted our resources. It's also possible that that really big day of testing exhausted the demand as well. Once everybody that was feeling kind of symptomatic got the test, there's no reason to go and get tested again if you're still waiting on your results from test number one. And so that's probably a part of it. It, it could be something that was a failing on the, the part of the Alabama Department of Public Health, but unless we see this being a continuing trend, it's just as likely, in fact, I would even argue more likely, that because so many people had gotten tested a couple days before, they felt no need and they didn't really see a reason in going and getting tested a second time. So another possible explanation to this could be that the panic is just starting to evaporate. People are not as scared of having this virus as they were at one time, maybe because we're, we know now that the fatality rates aren't nearly as bad as they were at one point. There's a myriad of reasons for that, but ultimately one thing that could be a consideration is that people are not going out and getting tested as much as they did at one point, simply because uh, the, the panic's just not there. You're not getting sort of that hypochondriac immediate uh, I've got to get tested every day kind of thing when they know that the lethality on this thing isn't that high and, and people that are like that, they're kind of hypochondriacs and always assume that they've got it. Those people have probably had enough tests by this point that they're really just not worried about it anymore. And that, that sort of heightened sense of awareness, that flight or fi uh, fight or flight switch that clicks on in our brain to try to protect ourselves, that's been on long enough now that it started to subside. That's also a, a possible explanation. So let's look at some other really important stats, primarily the deaths right here, how many people we have lost to this virus. You'll notice on the new deaths, we are seeing a continued increase. And today, because remember, these are just new deaths. This is not overall deaths. And so seeing new deaths in a day, we're seeing what was our third biggest day today. Not really by much, but... The fact that it is the third biggest day when coronavirus deaths that we've had since we started keeping track of this thing, that is significant. Now, one thing I did want to mention here is you have all probably heard stories, and I've talked about them a little bit, not really ad nauseum on the show so far, that there are stories of hospitals that are actually getting more funding the more COVID-19 patients that they have. And because of that, they may be fudging the numbers to try to increase spending. 
I don't know how true that is. I don't know how widespread it is. But I will say that if that practice is indeed going on, it's incredibly likely that it is going on even more so than in a normal state in the state of Alabama. The reason that I say that is because in Alabama, especially when you're talking about programs that are funded by the federal government, this tends to be a hotbed for that. The federal government sends a lot more money to Alabama than it takes in in tax revenues. And that's true in education. It's true in a number of different portions of our our culture, but hospitals are another one. And so because of that in the state of Alabama, it would not at all surprise me if this is indeed going on in other states. It's probably even more prevalent here than it is in your average state when it comes to people basically just kind of fudging the numbers when it comes to how many people actually died from COVID-19 and saying that they've had more COVID-19 patients than they actually did to try to increase their level of spending. And unfortunately, I've, I've been, this is not my first rodeo when it comes to this kind of thing, uh, especially in the realm of education, especially in the realm of agriculture. This kind of thing happens all the time where people try to take advantage of the system. And to a certain degree, you kind of understand why. I'm not saying that that makes it okay, but if you are a hospital and you're in bad need of funding, especially when you're talking about the way that it is right now, where a lot of the hospitals are empty, UAB announced just the other day that they're going to have to furlough some of their doctors and nurses. And so to a degree, you get it. You understand why that temptation is pretty strong for hospital administration to maybe not necessarily out and out lie, but have a very low threshold for what counts as somebody that has COVID-19. But that's really where the, uh, I really do think that that's where the uh, numbers are, but they may be inflated at least a little bit because of that. Now let's look at graphic. uh, Let's look at this graphic real quick. This is the hospitalizations. Now, you'll notice that even though our deaths are on the rise, our hospitalizations are actually on a decline from yesterday. Now, yesterday was a big day for hospitalizations, but today we're actually down a little bit, maybe sinking back into a a normalized or stabilized pattern. We'll have to watch for the next few days to see if that actually comes about, but today for hospitalizations was pretty average. A quick word of advice that I want to say to my fellow Alabamians and people around the United States, if you happen to be watching from out time the state. If you do want the country to be reopened, and I think that the vast majority of us do, some, some may disagree on the timeline, some people may disagree on the method or the exact details of how that should take place, how long that process should take place, but virtually everybody with the handful of a, a very few extremists genuinely believe that the shutdown needs to start undoing some of the restrictions on this. And and I'm not for any government restrictions. I'm just for people being responsible. But the important thing to remember here is, is that with liberty does come responsibility. And so if we do want more freedom, and I, I think that governments across the country are treating people unfairly by having these restrictions in place. However, what I am saying here is, and and what I want you to keep in mind is, one way to continue to make the case that we can be responsible, we can handle this ourselves, we don't need the government to tell us how to live our lives, is to be an example and show responsibility in our own lives, first and foremost. Because it's not fair 
And it's not right that a lot of government officials do not trust the average person, the average American, to make the right decisions and, and believe that liberty is more important than security. But one of the ways that we can sort of help compel them to believe that is to be responsible ourselves and also act responsibly. I fully understand, for example, that when it comes to the Second Amendment, I'm a Second Amendment absolutionist. I believe that you should be able to keep and bear arms. I think that the restrictions that the federal government has on the, the firearms right now is way too strict. I think that the, the firearm restrictions on Alabama right now is too strict, and I'm in Alabama. I mean, we're one of the more liberal, and I'm using that in the classical sense, we're very liberal when it comes to gun laws. There's very few restrictions on guns compared to other states, and I still think it's too much. However, even though I understand that when you protest, you have a right to open carry, I think it's smarter for us to, because we're aware of how other people are viewing us, how other people are going to be perceiving this thing, and I pun intended on this analogy, don't give the other side ammo. Don't show the other side that something that looks scary or looks unpredictable because that is going to be political fodder for other people. I've protested a number of different times on a number of different issues. There have been times where I carried my firearm, but I did so concealed. I had my sidearm on just like I always do when I'm out in public. I don't open carry when I protest. Because I'm always worried that it sends the wrong message. I do kind of understand the logic when doing so, specifically when when you're talking about gun rights. I, I do kind of get it when we're talking about that. But for something like this, you don't want to send the wrong message. And I think that even though a lot of these people, and, and I, know, I know the statistics, I've talked about them on my show, gun-owning citizens and, and people with a firearm license they tend to be some of the most law-abiding citizens, the most law-abiding demographic in the country, even more so than off-duty police officers. I understand that. I know that. I believe that. You're not trying to convince me. The people you're trying to convince with the protest are your elected officials and your political opponents that don't give you the benefit of the doubt. Seeing somebody on the steps of a Capitol building protesting doesn't bother me, doesn't make me uncomfortable. And I know that if you're doing it, it doesn't make you uncomfortable either. But it does make other people uncomfortable. That's not right. That's not fair. I understand that. But at the same time, if you want to ingratiate people to your cause, I'm not saying change the message. I'm saying change the approach. That's all I'm saying. I think that that would be the wise political move. So before we wrap up today... And I'm not really going to do a chaplain's report, but it is going to be pretty Bible-centric. I was thinking earlier today, our nation really, I think, has an unhealthy relationship with work. And I think that this has been going on a long time. This is not something that cropped up just because of the shutdowns and the, the Kung Flu and all of these things happening. I think that this is an... Basically, these symptoms are bubbling up to the surface because of that. But this has been a problem that has been underlying our society for a while. And by the way, to a degree, I've been a part of it as well. 
And I think that we look at work as being such a drudgery. We constantly juxtapose it to time spent with your family. And it is absolutely true that work can be something that causes you to grow apart from your family, that causes you to neglect your spiritual duties. There's a myriad of ways that work can become something that is that is incorrect in your life. But I think that, frankly, we've gone too far the other way with our relationship with work in a lot of ways. We talk about it as though it's a, gr a drudgery, something that you have to do, and, and I get it. I mean, I've had jobs I didn't like to, and I would certainly rather sit at home and watch TV or play video games than I would go to work a lot of times. But ultimately... We have gotten to the point to where, and this is one of the reasons that this idea of socialism has crept in, this idea that if you're going to work, it's because you're just part of the system and you're being exploited, and everybody that is your employer is taking advantage of you. All of these things, we really don't see a pride in work like we did at one time. We don't. I really find that to be a problem. And part of it does go back to my biblical worldview. That's not the only thing I'm basing it on. I remember men of my father's and my grandfather's, and especially my great-grandfather's generation, there was a level of pride in work. That even if it was a job that you didn't necessarily like to do, there was something to hold your head high after having completed task at work, having built something, all of those things were something that we used to applaud, even if you were working for somebody else, even if you were working for a company. Those were all things that we actually held in high esteem, whether or not you were wealthy or just a regular working class guy. Now, because it's become politically expedient for certain people, we talk about how exploited they are and how this is all to line pockets of corporations and all that. We saw... With Bernie Sanders, that was basically the only talking point that he had for the vast majority of his campaign. We have people talking about the government stepping in and fixing these $15 an hour minimum wages. Uh, we see Rashida Tlaib and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who are sort of the pinnacle of that, saying that, no, we, sh we should just not go back to work. We should just stop working. And... In the past few weeks, especially with the media, basically referring to everybody that wants to go back to work as crazy or uh, people that don't care about other people and don't care about how many other people die as long as they go back to work and they're just in it for the money and all of these other things, these baseless accusations that they've been lobbying, I think a lot of that goes back to the fact that we have an incorrect view of work as a society. And I think that this extends to the church as well. One thing that I want you to remember is that if you're looking at work from the biblical perspective, it's pretty much always been something that was seen as positive. Remember that in the book of Genesis, in the creation story, Adam is there in the garden. And before he sins, in other words, in a world that is completely perfect, that was crafted by God, that there is no imperfection anywhere in the world at this point. Adam still has a job. Now, granted, Adam's job gets a lot harder after the first sin takes place because God cast him out of the garden and he's now susceptible to things like 
sickness, and he has to, as the Bible says, grow bread and, and grow grain from the earth. He has to till the soil himself, and, and you know, from soil he has come, to soil he will return, all of those things. That's all true, but remember, he had a job back when the world was perfect. When God created a paradise for man to live exactly as he intended, with absolutely no imperfections in it, Adam still had a job. Adam was still working even back then. And I think that we kind of think of a, a perfect world as a world where nobody ever has to work or do anything. There's no inconvenience, no struggle. And I, that's not living, that's just existing. That's not the same thing. And this idea that work is something that we should work towards eliminating, I don't get that. I think even sometimes very well-intended Christians have an incorrect view of that. Because we even could talk about, for example, heaven and, and when we go to paradise, when this life is over, that we'll have rest. And, and I agree, we will have rest. That's a biblical concept. But they take it to the extent of we'll no longer have to work. And I'm like, no, I don't think so. If you're looking at spiritual beings, heavenly beings, like the messengers of God in the form of the angels, they all seem to have stuff to do. They all seem to have jobs when we see them, at least in the scripture, either as a, a herald for the coming Christ or somebody that, that helps give out God's message through prophets and visions. We see warrior angels. And so the idea that once we have passed on from this life that work is going to be eliminated because in a perfect world there would be no work, I think that's something that even the Christians in this country and over the world have probably been sort of peddling, which I don't think there's really any biblical basis for. I think we'll still have things to do even when we're in heaven that extend maybe even beyond just strictly worshiping God. I think we'll still be doing God's work, obviously. But I think that that's not the only thing that should be taken into account here. And remember that God himself, Jesus Christ, when he came to this earth, yes, he roved around and traveled and taught, but he also had a job. He was a carpenter for most of his life. And when he did start traveling around at the ripe old age of 30, we even see examples of him working after that. Remember that there's several examples of him where he's with the apostles, presumably catching fish. We see examples of him going out into the field that people had left for gleaning and harvesting grain. And so we, we think of work as this thing that we sort of have to do to survive, but the second we don't have to do it anymore, we should stop doing it. That's an incorrect biblical view of work. And in the same way, in the same way, because we sort of don't, uh, as a society, I'm not saying you specifically, as a society, we don't work, want work. We want to constantly be given things for free. And I don't think that's right either. In fact, we can see examples, for example, where David was offered something free to give to the Lord as sacrifice, and David says, no, I'm not going to sacrifice anything to God that doesn't cost me something. Then it wouldn't be a sacrifice. There's something that I have to have worked for in order for it to be a sacrifice that I've given up to God. Saul, we, we were just studying Saul where they go to see Samuel as a prophet. This is before he knew he was going to be anointed king. And he goes to see Saul, uh, Saul goes to see Samuel. 
and he has an offering there. He is not going to go to ask advice. In fact, he refuses to go and ask advice and show up empty-handed without doing some kind of contribution, something that he has worked and labored for to show his appreciation for God's counsel. He doesn't want it for free. And I think that's the right attitude to have, too. Another one that we could look at is Abraham. Remember that Abraham was offered basically a, a giant plot of land in the promised land for free, and he says, no, I will pay you. He's offered multiple times, and Abraham still refuses. He wanted to make sure that he paid for what he got. There is a sense of accomplishment that people that want things for free lack, and that's the reason that people that do get things for free don't appreciate it. That's the reason that people that do get things for free tend to be very frivolous as opposed to frugal with their money and the things that they've been given. If you want to spoil a child and ruin their sense of gratitude and appreciation, just give them whatever they want. That'll do it quicker than anything. And so ultimately, I think we have an incorrect view of, of work, and that has also spilled over to an incorrect view of stuff and blessings and appreciation. It's caused all kinds of societal problems. I wanted to, real quick, use this Bible verse here, Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So first of all, it reveals unto us that God works, obviously, and, and we see that happening earlier in the scripture as well, not just in Ephesians. But I want to point to the middle of that verse there where he says that we are his workmanship created unto good works. So in other words, we are the result of God's labor. And one of the things that we are called to do in exchange is to do God's work, to essentially be an extension of his will, an extension of who he is and to be used by him in order to accomplish his purposes. And so we are his workmanship in order to do good work ourselves. This is something that is fundamental to the Christian mindset that we have to have a mind about us to constantly be concerned about doing the work of God and helping to accomplish his will here on earth. There's an old hymn, and frankly, I don't know if it's just a sign of the times or because it just wasn't very popular. There's a hymn that we don't sing a lot anymore. And I hate that because I actually do really love this hymn, and, and maybe part of that is because I really love the person that I connect this hymn to. There's a dear brother of mine that I grew up with, Brother Harvey, who used to always lead the song. It was one of his all-time favorites. When he was leading singing, there was at least a good chance that this one was going to show up in the song list for that Sunday morning. So the song is in the old hymnal that we used to have at church. It's, it's number 230, I Want to Be a Worker. And I just want to point to a particular... You know what, I'm just going to read the entirety of it because I think that there are actually several good lessons in this. So the way it starts out, I want to be a worker for the Lord. I want to love and trust his holy word. I want to sing and pray and be busy every day in the vineyard of the Lord. I love that attitude of wanting to be busy doing God's work. And then the second verse, I want to lead the erring in the way that leads to heaven above, where all is peace and love. See, I think that that's about the best attitude that you can have as a Christian. 
wanting to constantly be bringing those who were lost into God's fold. And this attitude that we should be constantly trying to achieve the purpose that God set us on earth for, I think is a very healthy thing. And I hate that we don't sing that hymn very often anymore because it's really one of my favorites and uh, I don't even really see it in hymnals anymore. Maybe it's because our attitude about work changed so drastically. But remember that the calling of a Christian is not to hang out on earth and just to basically not sin and just hang on as tight as we can until finally we die and go on to be with God in heaven. No, we're here to work. We're here to do God's will. We're here to be extensions of him as lights to the rest of the world. And if we're unwilling to do that, then we don't need to be a Christian. Ultimately, the calling of Christ is a call to work. Stay the course, friends. Tactics with Caleb Colquitt. Only on News Radio 1440 and NewsRadio1440.com.